Nobody comes back late at night anymore. They have more security. The government noticed that they were moving into new areas. That's when things started to get out of hand. They don't belong here. They're spending so much money to keep them here when they could be spending it on other things. At least they're keeping them separate from us. A lot of bad things started to happen. They must just go. I don't know where they go. They must just go. We're at the breaking point. People are living in fear. you just leave? How do your weapons work? I just want everyone watching this right now to learn from what has happened. You want to see a card trick? Oh, really? It's a story. Move over. Okay, move over. Okay, I'm gonna tell you a little story about Joe and the bartender. The bartender goes to Joe, you know, business has been real slow in my bar, Joe. I was wondering if you could go out and get four of your drinking buddies to come drink at my bar, I'll give you two bucks. Joe goes, sure, I can use the money. So Joe goes out, cut the cards. six minutes and he comes back huffing and a puffing and he says all right mr bartender here's your four guys to drink at your bar bartender goes great joe there's your two bucks so they're just sitting around the bar talking the bartender goes you know joe these four guys they're kind of lonely joe i was wondering if you could go out and get four girls to drink with the four guys i'll give you two more bucks joe goes sure that's easy i got lots of girlfriends so joe goes out cut the cards go ahead that's right okay i'll do it for you so joe goes out and joe's gone five he's gone ten He's gone 15, he's gone 17 minutes, and he comes back huffing and a puffing. He says, all right, Mr. Bartender, there's your four girls to drink with the four guys. Bartender goes, great, Joe, there's your two bucks. But Joe, it took you so long to get the girls. The guys, they left, Joe. So do me one last favor. Go out and get me four more drinking buddies. Two cases of Ace High Whiskey, change for 220s. I'll give you two more bucks the last time I'll send you out. Joe goes, sure, but I'm sick of going out. I don't want to go out anymore. So cut the cards. Go ahead. again. So Joe goes out, and this time Joe hurries back. He's gone five, he's gone ten, he's gone fifteen minutes, and he comes back and he says, all right, Mr. Bartender, there's your four drinking buddies, your two cases of Ace High Whiskey and your change for 220s. Bartender goes, great, Joe, there's your two bucks. Thanks a lot. So they're just sitting around the bar talking. The bartender goes, are you a family man, Joe? He goes, I sure am. I got seven kids, four boys, three girls. Bartender goes, I got seven kids, three boys, four girls. That's great, Joe. How old are you, Joe? Well, I'm 67. My wife, she says she's 55. She's really 65. Huh? Oh, that's great, Joe. Uh, Joe, are you a gambling man? I sure am. I play at the 96 Club on 42nd Street. The other night, I won $499. My partner, he had a full house, aces over eight, which usually wins, but I said, not this time, sucker. I got a straight flush. I have another magic trick for you. You want to see me make all the white people disappear? 59th Street, Columbus Circle, 125th Street, next. This is the Uptown A Express, going to 27. Change for the double A local across the platform. The D. On the level, change for the number one Broadway. See? What'd I tell you?
Is there anyone else who might have had contact with her? This was everyone. Aaron Barnes did. Barnes, he worked on another floor. There were documents she needed to sign. He picked her up from the airport. He picked her up from the airport? Where is he? Hello? Hello? Mr. Barnes? Yes. This this is Dr. Mears from the Centers for Disease Control. I believe... Hi. Hi. I believe you may have had contact with Beth Emhoff last week. Yeah, I picked her up at the airport. What's this about? <coughs> How are you feeling today? Uh, pretty cruddy, to be honest. Head is pounding. I probably picked up some sort of bug. Where are you right now? I'm on the bus, heading to work. I'd like you to get off immediately. Wait, what? What's going on? Where? 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 Where's the bus, Aaron? Um, uh, Lake and Lindale. Can you tell me what's Lake going on? Lake and Lindale. I really need you to get off that bus. Listen, it's quite possible you've come in contact with an infectious disease and that you're highly contagious. What, what? Do you understand? I want you to okay. get off now and stay off. away from other people. No, no, what do I do? Don't talk to anyone. Don't touch anyone. That's the most important thing. We'll send somebody to meet the bus. Okay. I'm on my way to you now, Aaron. <coughs> What about my, my kids? I touched them. chance to be watching anything these days i i watched queen of america queen of africa or something like that camera queen of something one woman show at mosaic okay it's mosaic or maybe it was arena anyway <laughs> no i think it's mosaic because they did the original there okay and i saw that live and it's a felicia curry who read who was the first woman who read the lead in love songs Ah. Dynamic. She was also in the uh, play about Nina Simone. Anyway, she's fantastic. She's just a little dynamite woman, just like so much talent. And it was great. And I, it was interesting to watch live theater. It was just her, so it was just her. And they used, you know, three cameras and you used different angles. So it just wasn't straight on. And that was good. And then yesterday, Friday, Friday, this is Friday. Wednesday, I watched Working While Black. Oh, really? Tell me. Yeah, it was, I don't know who put it on, but Black Workers Center National was one of the speakers. Anyway, it was a bunch of uh, millennials with one, I don't think she's that much of a, well, she is it's a late, early bloomer, late bloomer, whatever. Not in her 60s, I think, probably in her 50s. A uh, sister from the National Black um, Worker Center. Mm-hmm. Talked about unions and African-American workers and why they needed black worker centers. And it was not an anti-union pitch at all. It was very much recognizing our communities in advance and economically advantaged because of unions. And the millennials and they were like, wow, I didn't know that. I thought, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) And it was great. It was a good exchange. And there was a guy who was, I can get the name, I can get the flyer out, who was a young nerd, blurred as they say, black nerd. Um, oh, is, that, is that that thing? Yeah, blurred. A blurred? A blurred. Oh, that's an ugly word. <laughs> it doesn't sound good. I like black and I like nerd, but blurred, I don't know. He was great. He was like, you know, on the tech end and talking about getting people in tech and, you know, getting on some trades. And there's another young man. Anyway, it was just really a dynamic panel. Mm-hmm. And I was like doing something else, but listening at the same time. And it was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. Cool. Mm-hmm. And then you guys have something coming up, and this is, uh, yeah, when I say you guys, I'm uh, wearing your Coalition of Labor Union women hat. You have something coming up I know about because I was working on the Solidarity Center blur. Remind me what that is. It's going to be International Women, International Women Workers. In celebration of International Women's Day, we're having a panel called Essential. Women's work is essential around the globe. And that's March 8th, right? March 8th, mm-hmm. that's International Women's Day. Wow, that's soon. Wow, wow, wow. And that's free? 
It's free. Yeah, nine o'clock in the morning, so we can have women from around the world. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. All right. There's going to be one woman from the United States, other than Liz Shuler, of course, to give greetings. Right. Um, and I got a sister from Philly Clue to come in and talk about Ask Me Women, essential workers. And then the other four panelists, or five panelists, are going to be women from around the world. Okay. I know we have a link at dclabor.org. And do you guys have a link at, on the Clue website as well? I think, I don't know. Don't, I'm going to start. Yeah, and probably there's one on the solidaritycenter.org yes. uh, website as well, just so folks know where to find it. So, all right. So that's nine o'clock in the morning on March 8th. And I should mention too, we had our weekly meeting of the uh, Labor Film Festival organizers uh, from around the world. Mm -hmm. Actually, you'll be interested. The, our guest speaker was from Women Make Movies, of course, mm -hmm. which is a great distributor that focuses on, it's really cool. They have two parts. The one part, obviously, they're a distributor of, you know, films uh, by and about women's issues. They have a great selection of labor films, which is why I know them. We've been working with them for years. But then the other part is they support women filmmakers. And so that's really cool. Anyway, we're working with them to basically get some deals and do some some cross promotion with the, with the Global Labor Film Festival folks. Yeah. So I think there's going to be some interesting collaborations coming out of that as well. So there's uh, there's Tom Zaniello. Hey, Tom, I tried to disable my video button. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> you look good. Yeah, I feel pretty good. Early on a Friday morning. Yeah, my my internet went down last night and the Comcast restored it. So if, if it gets a little wonky today, there's a reason for it. Anyway. We get the Friday wonkiness. So before we get to your column, um, Elise and I were just chatting about things that we've been watching lately. So we'll ask you the same question. What What's Tom Zaniello been watching lately? The most disturbing and amazing one is a five-part British series called It's a Sin, which is a history of the breakout of AIDS among a totally naive and generally speaking hedonistic city culture in London of, of gays. So the drama is not only uh, a celebration of their happy lives together, but <laughs> Uh, like I said, it's five parts. So part by part, we descend into what, and the British government's handling it is as bad, if not worse, than the American handling of it. Uh, so anyway, that's the most disturbing thing I've been I've watched. I rewatched a film that I liked along a number of years ago and didn't realize how good it was, called Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo about the Dupont of spillage, um, and I was I was very impressed. Anyway, uh, two also things. watching 170 other epidemic films, but that's... A <laughs> which, which is appropriate to our conversation. Yeah, it's all basically unknown actors except for one whose name, of course, they have forgotten, who plays an MP. But it's the most graphic gay film I've ever seen in terms of, terms of nudity and sex. I don't recommend it to everybody, just to mature adults. But it's a revelation, really, and I'm sure... If we went back, as I have in the past, watched some of the films about, especially New York City, the, the gay epidemic there, the AIDS epidemic there, and the way it was handled by the city, and we'd be equally shocked, I believe. I don't think there's anything that unusual about London. But, no, I'm sure not. But the criminal laws in England were much worse. The literal criminal laws against gayness were much worse than they were even in the United States, which by 1980-something were no longer on the, on the books. It wasn't illegal to be gay. But in London, in England, it was illegal to be gay in the early 1980s. Which is interesting because, as here, it led to having to suppress that and hide that led to all kinds of other things. Yeah, yeah. So before we, we wanted to have you on to talk about your recent column in the Working Class Perspectives blog, but another question that we've been asking folks, which is always just so interesting to find out, which is, I mean, you've been involved in, in, in watching and writing about films and obviously specifically labor and labor-related films for a long time, but tell us your first film story. What, how did you get into movies that way, way back when? Wow. 
You mean when I was a kid? I'm assuming that's when it was, but... My father was a Hitchcock TV fan. And the earliest I can remember, which would have obviously been in the, the 50s, we watched Alfred Hitchcock Presents, a TV show, together. I don't think my mom watched it. So I was hooked on Alfred Hitchcock probably even before I was hooked by being allowed to go to the movies by myself. The other thing that in New York City in 1950-something, I as a 9 or 10-year-old could routinely jump on a bus by myself and go X number of miles down to the local movie theater. It was just routine in those days. So that's what I was allowed to do. That's interesting because at least that reminds me of the story that you were talking about, you know, the same thing. And when you were a kid, and and it's interesting because it it seems like part of that was just you're an independent, that you got to do something on your own, right? Yes. And at least that's true for you as well. Absolutely. We walked to the local theater, the one that was closest to us. Uh-huh. That was, I don't know how many miles it was, but we'd go by ourselves. And then we'd go to the other one, which was in River Rouge, which was a, a good bus ride. Um, but we would walk that and it would just be us eight, nine-year-old girls. Yeah. Was, yeah. What city are we in? Detroit. Detroit. Oh, wow. Those are long streets. We were the, the southwest corner. Uh-huh. We're in an industrial park. We were surrounded by the Ford Rouge plant, Great Lake Steel, and Marathon Oil Refinery. My, wow. <laughs> oh, that's in part, that's in part. The... Yeah, it was a half hour bus ride to downtown Detroit. Yeah. The actual downtown movie theaters. Yeah. So for Tony... That's in part the story that I'm, um, I'm pursuing, which is the, these companies, uh, Union Carbide is obviously the mo- most notorious, but they're all, DuPont's the other one, and of course, Purdue, for the opioid epidemic, all of these companies. I know I paid attention to these things when they were in the newspapers, but I didn't, I don't think I paid enough attention. Anyway, so that's what I've been working on. And just another question. So you, you were in New York City when you were going to these theaters? Yes, I, I was in New York City until I was 10 years old. And then we moved to New Jersey, where my father worked for a Ford Motor Company. So then what, I- What was that first movie though? What was that first movie that when you went, aha, movies? <sighs> that, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I know we had for Northern New Jersey, which was even unusual in those days, we had a theater that played foreign films, quote unquote, foreign films. And I know that The Seventh Seal, which has been pretty much my all-time favorite film of its type, was one that we saw there. And I was blown away by that. And How old were you when you saw that? I, I was in high school. I would have been in high school. That's, a, that, that's Bergman. That is, that's, that's a tough film to... to I was going to say. I was going to say. I was, in the right, I was in the right high school at the time. That's all I can tell you. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. What, what you our high school was one-third Jewish, one-third Catholic, and one-third Protestant. And the Seventh Seal obviously has a lot to do with all of that stuff. So, all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's still, I remember seeing it when I was in high school and I don't think I understood half of it. Seriously, <laughs> at least rolling her eyes. Okay. I have no idea. That explains a lot about Tom Zaniello though. <laughs> I, I get it, because that's why you're so deep and like it's such a filmologist. Yeah. There's such a word. And, and of course, the, the circle comes around because it's an epidemic film. It's a plague film. That's um, right. Which is exactly right. what I'm which is exactly what I'm writing and reading and seeing movies about. And of course, a major, not the only part, but a major part of the project is applying it to what I call non-pathogenic vectors, which is to say radioactivity, smog, chemicals, toxins, which result in epidemics of their own. Opioid, the opioid is called an epidemic, which if you think about it, it's unusual, because it's not a bug, right? It's a drug. But the seventh seal is—it's the plague. It, you're right. It's the plague. Well, so your column that got me thinking about this was not just viruses. What epidemic cinema teaches us about working class vulnerabilities? So, uh, and then you go to talk about a bunch of films. So, can you lay out your premise for folks? My premise is that we are in 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 the COVID year. We it's taken a while, but we have realized that biological epidemics, let's start with them, are not equal opportunity vicious. 
they, they do affect disproportionately communities of color, tribal communities, and to a certain extent, any working class, white or otherwise, that happens to be in certain places at the wrong time and don't have access to the medical rural communities and so forth. So that, that an epidemic is not a neutral thing. It's very much a class specific thing. Now that doesn't mean that middle class and rich people don't get it too, but we know now the statistics are terrible. The statistics in DC are terrible. I was just reading about that this morning that people, all different kinds of people have caught it, but that the majority, a significant majority are people of color. Yeah. And that's where you live, of course. Yeah. Biology, biology is important with epidemics, but it is, but is the social and political and class context, which in the end, you can't say it's more important, but it's very important in terms of an epidemic. And those are only the biological ones I'm talking about. The non-biological, what I'm calling the path pathogenic, the, the smogs, the uh, chemicals and all that, disproportionately attack working class communities because those are the working class communities that surround these plants. Flint, Michigan, and as Elise knows, Detroit. That's why that triggered, when you said where your neighborhood was, that triggered a reminder that the toxicity of non-pathogenic epidemics is very much class specific. So, I mean, so just to be real, I mean, what you're talking about, and this is what Elise was just talking about, is that where certain people live, you got, you got a chemical plant or, you know, that certain people are living next to the chemical plant, certain people are not living next to the chemical plant. Yes. Yes. And it's not even color specific, although we often think of, obviously, we just talked about the DC African American community being disproportionately, but the white rural working class that surrounds a, a lot of these plants in West Virginia are, of course, disproportionately victims as well. And that's a con that has to do with place, obviously. They're too close for comfort. Now, ironically, when we look at some of these communities, as I have looked at one recently, and I'll talk about that maybe later, in Pennsylvania, the air is toxic because of the zinc smelter plant. But the executives live up on a hill. <laughs> <laughs> and, the pollution, and, and they live high enough so that the really terrible pollution doesn't reach their homes. It, it's fascinating in terms of uh, literal, how many feet off the ground you were, how much more protected you were, from these terrible pollutants. Well, so you take this premise and then you explore it in uh, a, a bunch of films that, you know, like I Cooked, Survival by Zip Code, we showed in a DC Baber film yes. fest. That, of course, is about the heat wave in Chicago and how that disproportionately affected uh, people of color and the elderly and, again, class. But there's a bunch of other ones here that I had never heard of. And also, I didn't realize that you built up this whole data bank of 170 films that are related. So it's a, it's a fascinating, it's about class, it's about race, but it's also looking at it through this, this prism of film. So I'd love for you to talk about some of these movies and Elise will jump in whenever Elise wants to. I want to jump in real quick here. There you go. Because I just want to remind it that before there was race, there was class and they invented race, the powers that be, the ruling class, to keep the working class divided. But the fact that they've been poisoning white people in the same way they've been poisoning black people is, is I mean, you don't hear about much about black people, but you don't hear at all about white people. And the first time I heard about it was at the Highlander Center. It's a kind of pollution and, and what you can go on, but yeah, back to you, Tom. Yeah, yeah. The one set of films I talked about is probably familiar and there's Chernobyl disaster films. We, we all knew about what happened, quote unquote, in, in terms of the accident. But what we didn't know, probably at the time, was of course the Russian authorities colluded with local officials to do two things. One, not evacuate people fast enough, because that would be bad for the party, the Communist Party, it would look bad. And two, they suppressed the statistics of the number of dead and affected. And these two things, this government manipulation runs through all epidemics, not just industrial and other pollutants. It runs and it runs through COVID as well. It, uh, it almost it always vaguely familiar. Yeah. <laughs> almost always begins with a denial 
and a min and a minimization, and then get, and then goes downhill from there usually. But the Chernobyl ones, I think, are important because, as many activists argue, this has not been solved. These things could have this thing could happen again. Obviously, it happened in Three Mile Island, which was also to a certain extent covered up. And the Chernobyl one are probably has the most in terms of the number of films, or at least four or five documentaries. And of course, there's a TV series, a five-part fictionalization of the incident, which is very good. And very good. Scary-ish, though, I'll tell you. Well. Oh, yeah, yeah. In a good way. It really, as Tom's saying, Chernobyl is something that we all thought we knew about. I did not know anything uh, about it. And the, uh, in fact, I had to go do some research after watching that series because I wanted to see how much of it was dramatized. Not much. Much. It's, not it's, much. Partly because some very brave writers went in pretty soon afterwards and interviewed. And also a lot of people they had access to a lot of people who streamed out of the area to go back home, quote unquote, so as to save themselves. And they in turn were interviewed. So a lot of information contrary to Soviet censorship got out almost immediately. What's the name again? Ch Chernobyl. Yeah, is that the I name of the series film? The TV series is actually called Chernobyl. Okay. Yeah, I think it was just, I'm trying to think, was it, it was a Netflix thing, wasn't it? Yes, I think so. I think so. Uh, you mentioned Cooked, and again, the uh, the similarities are very great. Great as in large, not, in, not as in really good. Yeah. Judith Helfen's film documents, what's the word? Ignorance is not the word. The culpability of city government. And of course, it also highlights the same thing that we're running into with COVID. There simply is not the preparation in terms of beds supplies, literally ambulances and so forth, so that these poor people couldn't, even if they got an ambulance with some of these people, they couldn't find a hospital bed for them. This is the heat wave in Chicago. This is the heat wave in Chicago, yeah. Which was, which was, which was a, a weird one because it was something that at the, if you were not in Chicago, you didn't really hear about it because, and, and this is explained in the film, because interestingly, again, like COVID, uh, a lot of these folks were dying. They weren't dying in the streets where people could see them. They're dying in their homes because they were literally, their windows were nailed shut in these low-income homes in Chicago. So people didn't, I think it wasn't until the body started to pile up in these refrigerated trailers that it became more public. Yeah. And we think, we, we always hope that a neighbor who lives by himself or herself has a community of connection. But in Chicago, just the numbers were against these people. They did not have re living relatives. They were isolated. People didn't go to check on them as, as often neighbors will now in, in other cities. So they, it really was a, poor, a terrible, perfect storm. The, the lessons from that, I think like all of these things, the lessons are really obvious somewhat after the investigative journalists go in there, the unions begin to talk about their members who died. There's a kind of momentum. And then after a couple of years, it starts to fade. When Judith named that film, Cooked, Survival by Zip Code, it was brilliant, really. Because you lived in a different zip code in Chicago, you made it through that heat wave. So I wanted to thank you, thank you for repeating the title because I was, I was going to, what was this? What was it? But I had met some years ago at the Great Labor Arts Exchange when she presented on her film Blue Vinyl. Yeah. And I, just, I was blown away by that. Yeah. What other films did I mention in that article? Let me go back for a sec because up to, to the point that you were just making, and, and Elise and I have been talking about this with our global labor film festival colleagues, which is the broader issue you know, of films. And, and actually looking at your list of sort of your 170 films on these related issues, I didn't realize that there was already a bunch of films out about COVID, and which is amazing that people have already made films during the pandemic under the kind of uh, restrictions that we have. But I wanted you to talk uh, some about, you know, why you've got investigative journalists, we've got reporters, we've got, I'm sure, people writing books on these things. But honestly, I go back to the Chernobyl thing, right? I'd read some articles and so forth. I don't think I ever read a book on Chernobyl. It was watching that series that really opened my eyes to that. And so film obviously has a power that I think other, some of the other media maybe don't have or have in a different way. There are about 14 or 15 COVID films already finished. Wow. Three or four of them are about Wuhan in right. China. Two of them 
from uh, China basically are smuggled out. The footage, the reason why we can get at these, get to these, get to the information on the ground now is because anybody with a cell phone can film and send it to somebody in the United States or outside of China. Which really um, pisses off the Chinese authorities, I gotta say. Yeah, yeah. The, the other COVID films, one of them is uh, fictional from Canada. These have played at film festivals in the United States, but have not been picked up by distributors for the networks. One of the documentaries about China is by the famous sculptor Ai Wei. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his, his name accurately. And distributors won't touch it because it's so political and so anti-Chinese. Netflix wants to sell, these companies want to sell in China. They don't want to, they don't want to sell a film that is too critical of, uh, of customers. There's a lag in distribution, purchase of the films for release and so forth. I tracked down a couple of them at film festivals. The Canadian one I saw at the, online from the Toronto Film Festival, but it still hasn't been released. And it's a fascinating little fiction film about it. You taught film for years, Tom, and, and we've got a couple, a, a couple of generations now of folks who have really grown up talking about the digital natives and, and um, digital immigrants. I mean, folks who have grown up with iPhones. TikTok is actually the latest thing for me is that I don't watch TikTok videos, but so you can, yeah. people who just, people watch TikTok videos, people who make TikTok videos, people who make make videos using their or films using their cameras. It's really this whole visual storytelling. It seems to me that folks, you know, are just as likely. Imagine Chernobyl happening now, people whole different things. So it just seems visual storytelling, which is another way of saying, even calling it films anymore, it's films, video, I don't know. It seems like the whole medium has changed. Yeah, there's a certain sense in which my thoroughness has a limit. I tend to try to to investigate films that I know probably will circulate outside of the various individual networks that people use for cell phones. But that doesn't mean these films, TikTok and others, are not reaching large audiences because they are. It's just that there are only so many hours in the day, and I have to I do have to go to bed and eat dinner once in a while. Anyway, back to Chernobyl as the example you bring up. If there had been cell phone and videos taken of that, we would have seen some of the bravest people of all time. We know how brave the health workers are for COVID. We're talking about a Chernobyl firefighters literally running into this building that has just released this terrible radioactivity. So in a sense, we should be able to do better, quote unquote, on, on the next epidemic when it comes along because of people's access to this, to these new media. At least I hope so. Elise? Oh yeah, no, I, it reminded me of George Floyd. What if, it would be one thing to have a picture of it. It was another thing to have a video of it, to see the film and then excess of the film. And I think that, that is the beauty of film is that it is easily accessible, more easily accessible. And so more people can get the information. And I think that it's, thank you for sharing knowledge here with me about what's out there. I've been making my list here and checking it twice because I, <laughs> I still got a lot of catching up to do. And because of the pandemic, we can actually catch up in our own time. Yeah. yeah. So I can watch it at three o'clock in the morning. I can watch it at three o'clock in the afternoon. But actually, no, at least that, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I was thinking about the George Floyd thing. A photo, I would say a photo of that happening, I don't think would have had anywhere near the impact because then you just have some guy with his knee on some guy's neck and it's yeah, like, I know. you know, what? I mean, seen photos. We saw, we saw Rodney King. We saw that was actually on film too, but not the same impact as that camera, that close. Uh, and for that time, that the whole thing right. there was the time. It wasn't until... And I couldn't get through the whole thing, I'll be honest. Oh, but yeah. even that, the, and that's where you realize that the absolute criminality and horror of that was that one human being could do that for that long, at all, obviously, but to do that for that long. And I think that's where the difference between the photo mm -hmm. and a TikTok, which is a very short video, but that thing just goes, it is absolutely unbearable and one of the things that, that i was thinking about is that when i talk to african-american friends they're like every they all have stories of of those kinds of things happening right so it's not 
those you know, that was not any news to anybody in that community. Yeah. I think for a lot of people outside that community who even if they'd heard those stories, it's one thing to hear stories about police brutality. My son, who had a lot of you know, hung out with a lot of black friends in high school, they were always getting stopped. So he knew about driving while black. But to have now you have these videos showing these these things happening. And to me, that's why when we had what happened last year with all of the you know, activity in the streets, to me, it was driven by the fact that now everybody could see what the hell was going on. It's one of the reasons, by the way, the police cameras mysteriously malfunction when they'd be doing shit. It's, I love when I'm reading a story, it's, huh, yeah, the uh, video kind of cut out there. <laughs> you know, really? And the people who are doing the filming, I mean, who, that, the woman, I think, who held the camera for George, who? Wow. Did you put yourself in that? Because uh, I, I was thinking if I were there, I shoot a lot of rallies right. and events and so forth. And I'm thinking like to do that. And I think if I recall, I think she was actually along with other people trying to get him to stop. So she wasn't a passive. No. Yeah. One, of the, one of the important aspects of the kind of teaching and research and writing that I do is of course, based on my politics of class, the worst epidemics, industrial and so forth, are by these incredibly powerful companies. And, and uh, we can't say the opioid epidemic was simply caused by Purdue Pharmaceuticals, but the evidence since the filmmakers have started working on that topic is beginning to build that the culpability of executives in some of these big corporations is, is now so obvious that it's really scary. They're beginning to find out. My favorite example for the opioid addiction is all of us now know those pain cards that were shown with the smiley face on one end and the sad face and from one to 10 and you tell the nurse what, where you are and so forth. That's, a, that's virtually a creation of Purdue Pharmaceuticals to push opioids, to get people in the doctor's office and in the hospitals to say, I'm a six or a seven in pain. And they say, we have the pill for you. And don't worry, it's not addictive. The biggest lie they told it all. Biggest lie. And it's much safer than the other painkillers you could be taking. Mm -hmm. So the plan to get people addicted was not a plan to get them addicted. The plan was to get them to buy drugs. They didn't plan an addiction, but it happened anyway. I'm pretty sure Purdue actually manufactured the car, the first set of cards and distributed to all the doctors and hospitals. The shorthand for this, and medical people know this, is the vital signs. Up to the, up to the use of these cards, pain was not one of the primary vital signs. Blood oxygen, so forth and so forth. And they, there was, a there was a contest among the ranks of professionals to come up with a fifth vital sign. Should it be glucose? Should it be X? Should it be Y? And Purdue pushed that it should be pain. Because if you think about it, pain is a very subjective vital sign compared to the other four, which are all measured by the tubes running out of your arm. And once they established pain as the fifth vital sign, they were on to they were on their way to selling billions of pills. Yeah, it's totally true. I remember when they've asked me that, you say, I mean, you look at that and you're like, I don't know where it is. It's not something that you really have a way to say. It hurts, right? I mean, it hurts a lot, doesn't hurt so bad. It's I think it's very difficult to do that. So yeah. And I think there's also a tendency. If you're in a doctor's office, obviously something got you in there. So I mean, you wouldn't go to the doctor if it didn't hurt at some level. And if you're in a doctor's office and you want some relief, so you're going to be like, let me pick the one that's over there. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your, your scary list here that you put together, your Epidemic Cinema Data Bank, which is uh anybody can get we'll put a we'll put a link when we post this but. yeah actually if you just put my last name wordpress and epidemics and you epidemic epidemic list or something like that i i can't really recommend this as a viewing list dude seriously <laughs> let me just you start with the a's up you know andromeda strain obviously but what's what is cool about it actually i could just share uh, i could just share a screen for a sec yeah 
because he's got the he's got the film name, the year, and then he's got whatever it is. Andromeda strain, mutating alien crystalline virus. That's what that's the Andromeda strain. People didn't realize that was the vector. <laughs> It's a mutating alien crystalline virus. That's what I, it is. I, I read the book and saw the movie and didn't remember that. But oh, Body Snatchers, the alien seed pods, we remember the aliens. But just all kinds of fascinating stuff here. I, and all these corona, this is where I saw this, this list of all these coronaviruses. Yeah, see, this, li this list is uh, out of date. I've, I've just finished, I'm up to 170 now. This list, I can't remember what it was. But yeah, this doesn't have as many Corona films that are available. Although politically speaking, oh God, I'm blanking on her name. Coronavirus Capitalism and How to Beat It was the first COVID film that, who's our radical writer? Oh God, that's terrible. Anyway, she talks about how an epidemic is a trigger for authoritarian types to try to get more laws in and to try to free up capital so they can do more things in society. And she points out that epidemics are triggers for these companies and they use them in a sense. That's why it's called coronavirus capitalism. Uh, yeah, this, the, yeah, this list is a, it's going to get better. It's going to get longer and better. I'm, inclu I'm including other things in the, in the list about what kind of epidemic it is and so forth. There's a lot of zombie stuff here. We can't get away from that. And a, lot a lot of plague stuff. A lot of zombie stuff. stuff. A lot of zombie. Oh, you've got one of my favorite films out in, in a genre that I'm not particularly fond of. My, my wife is the expert. She loves all of these films. She, she, <laughs> she just sit and watch these all. And the thing was... Before the actual pandemic, it was just an escape to this. But now that there is a pandemic, not so much. But District 9. Which oh, I, yeah. That's, but, that has an error, by the way. That's not supposed to be fuel. <laughs> I wondered about what well, I was going to ask you because I don't, I was like, really? I don't no, remember. No. Yeah. Spaceship fuel is a big issue in the film. Yes. Um, but the, the pathogen is not clear. Um, okay. Okay. I, I thought maybe I missed actually, something. And that's why I need another I need another column. It's actually uh, gene transfer because right. our Afrikaans hero, and I want to give too much of the plot away, becomes infected with the gene of an alien, so right. to speak. It's a pathogen, yeah. So it's a, a gene transfer. That would have given anybody a pause right there. It's a great film. It's oh, a, yeah. And and, yeah. and I would I've always argued that's one of those films that really is a labor film because oh, I, and and Tom you and I have had this conversation as at least and I over the years about what makes a labor film and I think gosh you have a pretty broad definition right it's not just Mate Juan and Silkwood I think I'm broader than most although I'm still aware of we just went past Do No Harm which is the best opioid addiction. Mm. Yeah, Do No Harm, The Opioid epi Epidemic, which is relatively new, 2019. That's probably the best one on that. Yeah, I'm a little broader because I like to look at class forces overall, not simply only working class figures. But if you think about some of the classics, Mate Wan and these others, they don't ignore class. They don't know they don't ignore class while they're concentrating on the working class. They also have a class analysis usually as part of it. So mm -hmm. So we just have about five minutes to go. I thought we'd wrap up with just free associating on some of your favorite quote unquote labor films. I mean, you obviously watched a lot of films, written about a lot of films over the years. And what kind of sticks with you, whether they're classics or, or newer films? What are things that you've been thinking about? You know, I, I, I like to bring up Raman Bahani, the, the filmmaker from New York City who's done uh, Man Push Cart and the film about the Willits Point Chop Shop. He's a brand new film coming out. Yeah, it's White Tiger. Yeah. And, and it's amazing. I was gonna bring that up. You stole my name, you Sorry. stole my title. That's all right. That his latest film is White Tiger and it's, it's set in India, unlike his other films, which tend to be set in New York City. And it's amazing portrait of class and cast because as more and more writers are introducing cast, the term cast into the discussion because some would argue uh, relevant in any society, it's not just class, but cast that sometimes, sometimes rule. But anyway, in terms of films, the uh, director that I always look forward to seeing his next film, but I was blown away by White Tiger, which I just saw the other night on uh, streaming on one of the 
one of the streaming services. John Sayles was for many years my favorite, and he's, I don't know, he's not that he's drifted, he's, it's hard to come up with, uh, it's hard to come up with a working class classic every time you release a film, but Brother from Another Planet is one I like to use to discuss this issue of what is a working class film. The Brother from Another Planet is an alien, but he's a working class bloke trying to survive in New York City. So that, that film pushes the definition about a, what a working class film. And if you remember the endings, the ending of the film is that all his alien brothers and sisters literally come out of the dark to rescue him. And they're all work, and they're pretty much all working class folks. It seems to be pretty obvious. Enslaved, right? He had, that's... The, yes, the, the, the yes. Two, John Sayles and another, and another white dude play the slave catchers right. that come from the planet right. to fetch him back. And so it's almost a comic take on this whole issue. And if it weren't so real in both historically and whatever, we might be ashamed of calling it a comic take. But it is almost that they're slave catchers who can't do their job. We might have to, uh, we might have to show that again and get John to introduce it at least. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, yeah, I'd be there. I'd be I, there. I haven't seen that in years. Oh, I've seen it pretty recently, and it, it, it holds up. It has the wonderful moment when he gets on the subway. Of course, he's completely naive about the ways of New York City, and he sits down next to a young white dude and who's a card magician, if you remember it, and absolutely shows him some shows him some tricks, and he says, now I, gotta, now I got the real trick. At the next stop, when the doors open in Harlem, he says, I'm going to make all the white people, I mean, the stop before Harlem, I'm going to make all the white people disappear. <laughs> and it's just yeah, a classic. I love that moment. Yeah. So one of the things I was thinking about both of those directors that you mentioned is that even when they make films that are not, and a bunch of their films are clearly labor films, we've shown them in, labor, in the DC Labor Film Festival. Both of those directors have made films that are not technically labor films, but because I think you're arguing, I would certainly agree with it, because they are very class conscious people, even their non quote unquote labor films still are infused with at the very least, humanity and, and a sense of class, right? Yeah, yeah. The baseball film's a good example. Are baseball players working class? Yes and no. But certainly they're part of a class conscious system and the owners and the managers and so forth. It's almost a microcosm of American class system in general from top down where the, uh, the baseball players are obviously the workers, even if their salaries are very good. Most of the time they're not, by the way, but it's a class system. And one of the big problems that I have with films that a lot of times there'll be a film where you think it'll be about some worker and you think, oh, great, it's going to be a, it's going to be a labor film because it's about a worker. I'm sorry, I am going to have to leave because I'm taking my grandchildren to school, which means we're going to perch in front of a TV set across the street where they live. I'm the man in charge today because their parents are off working. I loved it. Thanks, Let's Tom. do it again. Let's do it again. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Definitely. Bye-bye, brother. All right, Elise. Any final Elise thoughts? I think we should give the Joe Hill Award to, to John. I was reflecting on the films, and I started with Brother from Another Planet. Then I went, went back and watched the Secaucus 7, and then I just followed him all along, and he's done a remarkable job. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I still have the photograph of me and him together. I was like, I, I'll close that. But I tell you the story when he was in town. So uh, that was, we were doing all these other tours and walks and so forth. And so he and Maggie Renzi came to the, the labor tour that we were doing at the portrait gallery. Mm -hmm. And it was being led by, I don't even know if it was a docent, but it's one of those people that shows you around. But the perfectly nice person, but did not know anything. It was supposed to be about showing you, there's a bunch of different labor-related photographs or art, and, and that's what sort of gave me the idea. But I don't know about this stuff. I, don't, I can look and I can see, well, there's a picture of a worker or whatever. So I was like, let's get somebody who actually knows about this stuff to give this talk. But this person did not know anything. Stopped in front of this big, there's one of these big portraits of Cesar Chavez. Mm -hmm. And the person stopped in front of it and was like, this is some sort of labor person, I think. 
And John Sales, bless his heart, he stepped up and he gave the talk. He just stepped right in and, and I was simultaneously completely embarrassed that John Sales was along on this talk, which as far as I was concerned was a bit of a flop. <laughs> But also so thrilled that I had John Sales giving a talk on Cesar Chavez to the group. And everybody, of course, was completely thrilled and it all worked out. But that was a, <clears throat> okay. So who's our guest for next week? Next week, I want to say, I think it's the director of 9 to 5, if I'm not mistaken. It's, oh, yeah, no, it's yeah, both of them, Julia Reichert and Steve Bogner. Uh, will be uh, with us to talk about 9 to 5, the story of a movement. And I wish I could say that this was planned for the first show in Women's History Month, but it wasn't. <laughs> yes, it was divine intervention. I will accept that. I will accept that. Yeah, we, we can, we can uh, talk about that and it'll be cool. It'll be cool. It will be. Thank, Thank you, you, Elise. This is, this is wonderful. And Tom is just such a great guy. He has forgotten more about labor movies than I'll ever know. So. <laughs> it's great. And so is his book, which is, is it updated. He has four books on labor oh, films okay. now. Okay. It's, it's, okay. Uh, yeah, I think he's got a second edition. But you're talking about uh, Reds and Riff Raff, my favorite. And I think he does have a second edition of that. Uh, I will do some research and make sure to put that in the story notes. Cool. All right, Elise. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. Bye. -bye. Bye.